Hello, thank you for tuning in to our Empire Lecture Series podcast. We hope this podcast finds you well, whether you're driving to work, between cases, or adding some education to your workout. Remember that all of these lectures are also available on our website and YouTube channel. And if you like what you hear, please rate us five stars and subscribe. Happy listening. All right, so um, thank you everyone uh, for tuning in again to our Empire Lecture Series. We're very fortunate today to have a very bladder cancer filled uh, two hours. And um, again, it's an honor to have you, uh, Dr. Bachner, with us today. Dr. Bachner is a professor of urology, chair of surgery at the Memorial Sloan Kettering, um, and also professor of urology at Cornell. Um, and uh, you know, we feel very, uh, very honored and very grateful to have you, Dr. Bachner, um, with us today. Um, for our listeners, something that we've been doing um, with some of our speakers, and I think it would be a great opportunity to do with you, Dr. Bachner, is just kind of ask you a few questions um, for our residents to kind of see uh, where uh, someone like you, kind of the trajectory where you started and how you ended where you did. And I guess one of the first questions I just wanted to ask you was if you could just tell us a little bit about uh, your career path and, you know, um, how you got where you are. Sure. First of all, good morning. Uh, I just want to correct one thing on your introduction there. Um, I'm, I'm a not the chairman of the Department of Surgery. That's uh, Jeff Drebin. Uh, in our department here, but I hold the Sir Murray Brennan chair in surgery. Dr. Brennan was one of the former chairmen at Memorial, so I see. honor to hold that endowed chair. Um, so, um, how does how does anybody's career start? You know, it's uh, it's a uh, like a river, I guess, you know, you run up against rocks, which sort of uh, push you one direction or another, and you never really kind of know exactly how that stream's going to end up uh, moving. But um, uh, in medical school, I thought uh, a cardiologist was sort of my view of what a, a real doctor was. And um, I think a lot of us in urology that begin to get into the medical fields, you realize what uh, medicine doctors do, dealing with some of the more chronic issues. Um, wasn't exactly what I was uh, thought it was, um, and then started doing surgery and absolutely loved it. I did my medical school training at UCLA, but my surgical training was at USC. Um, and for anybody who's been down to the campus at USC, the medical center is basically it's the the big county facility in the area there. There's a private hospital as well as a, and a cancer center there, but most of the training was at uh, big big county um, in LA, which is a really exciting place. Uh, it was it's in East LA, so right in the middle of the Knife and Gun Club and mm -hmm. the confluence of the ten and the five freeways. So you saw a ton of trauma, both blunt and penetrating. Mm -hmm. And uh, before the uh, the Middle East wars started, it's basically where all the uh, military surgeons ended up training as well. So we ended up getting a ton of uh, training. It couldn't have been a better place to to train as a young surgeon. Um, the program that I was in was a six-year program. So we had two full years of general surgery, uh, which were incredible. So much so that I uh, actually walked into my chairman's office towards the end of my second year to tell him that uh, I was changing to become a general surgeon. 
uh, who then promptly talked me into sticking with urology. Dr. Don Skinner was my sure. chair. Sure. And uh, that was a great idea. So, um, you know, I think that uh, role models are what sort of move you towards specific areas um, or events in your life. Uh, I had a great role model, several great role models. Um, interested in oncology. I like doing the big surgery. Um, sure. And that's kind of how I ended up moving in that direction. Dr. Skinner uh, was uh, a real um, uh, unique surgeon um, from a skill standpoint, still probably the best surgeon I think I've ever seen, uh, but also was a, was a true doctor, knew how to take care of patients and uh, was very humble in many ways, uh, despite the achievements he was able to, uh, to achieve during his career. Um, and so that's how I sort of got moved towards that direction, was always interested in the research end of things, had a laboratory for probably about eight years. Um, and, um, and then as I got more and more clinically busy, began to sort of serve more as a translational person working with the laboratories, but not having a direct uh, responsibility to run a laboratory. So mm -hmm. um, that's kind of moved me in the direction that I'm, I'm in today. Um, it seems like um, USC was a, a big, I mean, I, I know right now I was fortunate to do um, uh, an away rotation there and it was amazing. I mean, w one of my closest mentors is still there and the work they do there, um, how they speak of Dr. Skinner and how he's affected everyone. It's pretty amazing to hear that kind of lineage um, even today. And he's no longer, obviously he's retired, but um, it's pretty fascinating to see that, uh, that how people are affected by him so much. Um, well, I think everybody, everybody has to understand sort of the, the lineage from where their training comes from. Right. Which means that, uh, uh, understanding where the people who trained you came from, you know, uh, know who they are and who trained them and where they train. Um, yeah. That's your genealogy. And that, that really begins to flow, flow through you. Um, Skinner trained with uh, Waylon Ledbetter uh, out at Mass General and Dr. Ledbetter uh, also was really one of the early pioneers in urologic oncology trained People like uh, John Donahue, who set the, the paradigms for surgery and testicular cancer. Right. Um, and, you know, these, these are people that we all have to remember because they have such an important uh, impact on our field. And um, these, again, this is part of the genealogy of everybody who trains you yeah. as well. And it becomes your lineage. So... No, it's it's truly amazing. It's humbling too. I mean, to see Dr. Olson, we see Dr. Hensel in these lectures, uh, Dr. Benson. Our, our lineage, um, very similarly, Columbia hasn't had too many chairs, but just to see the connections and our faculty and how they're connected, it's very humbling um, in its entirety. I guess along those same lines, um, Dr. Barker, what what made you choose? You know, what, why didn't you gravitate towards private practice? Uh, what, what made you gravitate towards academic medicine or academic urology? You know, I, I don't think I was ever interested in moving towards private practice, largely because of the research interest 
mm -hmm. and the teaching interest that I had. Not that you can't teach uh, in private practice as well. Many terrific, wonderful uh, folks that are in private practice end up training a lot of residents have a big impact. Um, but for me, it really was the, um, it, it was the whole academic side of things. I enjoyed um, the research side, studying what we did from a clinical side, always trying to figure out ways to, to make it better for patients, whether it was cancer outcomes or quality of life type outcomes. Um, and, uh, and the teaching side always was really important as well. Very much enjoyed doing that. So it just, it, it always just felt right um, being able to do that. So, um, but, but everybody's recipe is a little bit different. And there's lots of different ways, I think, that you can be professionally very satisfied during your career. Oh, that's great. Um, and I guess for someone, you know, whether they're a third, fourth, fifth year um, resident, kind of pursuing their um, subspecialty ideas at this point, what kind of advice would you give for someone um, going into, you know, hoping to go into your logic oncology at this time? Uh, you know, I think everybody needs to find what they're passionate about. <clears throat> um, if, if your logic oncology is, the, is your interest, then you go into it with an with a open mind. There's so many different fields that you can begin to gravitate to over time, and you really never know what circumstances are going to bump you one way or the other. Yeah. Um, when I came out to Memorial, it just happened that uh, Dr. Scardina, who was the chairman was interested in um, finding somebody to help with uh, the bladder cancer program and uh, the continent reconstructive aspect of things. There's a long, wonderful history of bladder cancer work at Memorial. And so this was an opportunity for me to add on those wonderful successes and work with some people who have obviously uh, had a huge impact on the field as well. Sure. Um, never really thought that I would just be focusing so much on on bladder early on and and really enjoy doing the big kidney tumors and and retroperitoneal work and i still enjoy doing that mm -hmm. um, but i think in academics if you have a chance to focus in an area it does help academically um, to establish your your footprint um, but early on i don't think you really want to try to limit yourself one way or the other you want to develop a full range of skills, try to do as much of everything as you can. Um, but from an academic standpoint, not a bad idea to begin to focus on something. Um, urology obviously is a subspecialty. Urologic oncology is a specialty within the specialty, but yeah. even within that area, there's still so much to, <laughs> to know and learn and yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. Well, this is kind of a side question. Before we get started, I just wanted to ask, um, is everyone in your family um, good singers or is it just your daughter? You know, I have... Quite amazing. Um, I, I, got, uh, I listened to it on Twitter and it was fascinating. I mean, she's so talented. I have, I'm, I'm blessed. I have, uh, I have five daughters. And uh, so I grew up in a household that just it was always a lot of singing and it was usually me screaming at them to stop. Screaming, <laughs> but um, so the yeah, talent but, is uh, there. My huh? middle daughter has uh, has really taken to that and um, 
No, it's it's nice to hear something uh, of that kind of light uh, around now. Um, it's it's pretty amazing. It, um, but anyways, no, thank you again, uh, Dr. Bachner, so much for being with us. Um, I guess, you know, we'll we'll get started um, with our Empire series. If anyone has any questions, please uh, feel free to post them in the chat function, and we'll we'll get to them as uh, as best we can towards the end. So with that, I'll give it to you, and thank you again. Great. No, my pleasure. So again, welcome everybody. Um, what I, I'm going to do this morning is to kind of run through kind of a survey, if you will, a little bit of history, um, some information about why we do certain things from a, from a urinary diversion standpoint. Um, and I thought that uh, one of the first things we do is kind of look at uh, what it is that people are doing right now. Um, I'm kind of gearing this more towards the residents. And whenever we get new fellows or residents that rotate through us, I'm always curious as to what you've seen during your training. And this pretty much gives a pretty good sense as to what's being done in the country. These are trends for continent urinary reconstructions in the United States up to 2013. And you could see that continent diversions have for many years now been uh, utilized at a very low rate, below 20%, but uh, what's been happening has actually been dropping over time. And as you can see here that uh, uh, rates are lower for the older patients um, and um, higher path stages sometimes will also um, get folks to move away from using this. Um, younger people, higher volume centers uh, tend to be the ones that do a little bit more of the cutting reconstructive work. And as I'll go through with you, you know, cotton reconstructions are not new. Um, they've been around for quite some time. Um, but most of you guys uh, and, and women are seeing uh, the uh, conduit basically as the main form of reconstruction that's being done at this point. Um, even with the uh, increased utilization of the minimally invasive techniques, this is from the International Robotic Consortium data that was published just a couple of years ago. You can see that uh, over time, uh, intracorporeal reconstructions have increased pretty dramatically. Uh, and in many programs now, that's the primary form of reconstruction. But if you look over uh, on the second uh, uh, graph here, what you can see is, again, what's happening is it's the uh, extracorporeal conduits that are dropping off and the intracorporeal conduits that are increasing. Continent reconstructions have, again, continued to be uh, less than 20%, despite the fact that they've been around now and utilized for at least three decades, which is a little disappointing since they can provide such incredible functional reconstructions for many folks. That's kind of the state of what's being used now. So, uh, and again, you know, this, the continent reconstructions, if you look here, the intracorporeal diversions in particular, it may be because of complications. There's a learning curve obviously associated with it. And uh, for those of uh, you that have done or been uh, participated in some of the continent intracorporeal work, it can obviously be done. It can be done safely, but it it's um, uh, it can be a challenge, and it does take some time. There are pretty advanced robotic skills to be able to do those well. So, so let's kind of back up a little bit, and and I always like giving a little historical perspective as to where we've been because it does help explain why we're where we're at now. This is one of the earliest forms of reconstruction in patients that underwent cystectomy for bladder cancer. In fact, uh, many times you'd undergo these reconstructions first. Uh, uh, and if you survive that, then you'd have the bladder removed. Uh, 
basically these were either wet colostomies or uh, they could just be plugged into the sigmoid colon, ureteral SIGs, uh, and uh, use the anal sphincter as the continence mechanism. Uh, this uh, was the predominant type for many years, but because of the mixing of the urine and the fecal streams, infections were quite common, and these ascending infections would lead to renal damage. But what probably stopped the use of this was the many-fold increased risk of developing adenocarcinomas at the ureteroenteric connection sites. Um, and over time, this has really fallen off, although you will occasionally see some patients uh, sometimes from third world areas uh, that, that will present with this. Um, sometimes it's usually due to kidney problems, or I have seen a few of these folks that have shown up with these adenocarcinomas, unfortunately, at fairly advanced stages. Um, because of these complications, uh, Dr. Uh, Bricker um, had uh, designed the, the ileal conduit to separate the streams this was obviously a very simple design, easy, easy to construct. And because of the decreased risk of infections compared to the ureterosigs, renal preservation rates were higher. Again, it, by separating the bowel and the urine, the uh, cancer risks dropped dramatically. But it did require the, the, the need for an ongoing stoma, which uh, can be part of the morbidity associated long-term with the uh, conduit as well. Um, Dr. Studer's group demonstrated the complications long-term of conduits, and, uh, and you can see that uh, while many patients obviously don't survive 15 or 20 years that have radical cystectomy, uh, many will survive beyond five or even 10 years. And as you can see, there are significant risks uh, for stones or upper tract changes as patients will get older. And if you do make it out beyond a decade or so, there's uh, a 50% uh, incidence of upper tract changes, um, hydronephrosis or scarring, and up to a 40% chance of stones forming as well. So something to keep in mind uh, with ileal conduits longer term. Specifically related to the stoma, um, these are obviously abnormal openings in the abdominal wall. They serve as pop-off valves for any intra-abdominal pressure. And because of that, the small opening that we make at the time of surgery will expand with time and peristomal hernias can be uh, quite common. Uh, they can be graded um, radiographically such that maybe it's just a little bit of fat or a small amount of bowel or a large amount of bowel. Um, and these, uh, the natural history of these is that they will increase with time and they are quite common. When we look back at our series, um, we found that uh, by about two years, about 50% of patients had uh, some evidence of a peristomal hernia over time. This was lower than I thought. I thought uh, almost 100% of patients over time developed uh, some peristomal changes, but, but these can be significant. They can cause uh, issues with the appliance. They can cause uh, some pain occasionally, a percentage of these will need to be fixed. And fixing these can be quite challenging. They usually will require some sort of mesh repair. Um, so obviously eliminating these would be preferable if possible. Our colorectal colleagues over the years have uh, done a series of randomized controlled trials where they've actually pre-placed peristomal mesh as a way of essentially fixing the hernia before it actually uh, develops and have found that they've been able to significantly reduce the risk of peristomal hernias and do this safely with very few 
um, uh, evidence of infections related to the mesh itself. And so we started a randomized trial a few years ago to prospectively put mesh in uh, in patients that were undergoing ileal conduits in hopes of reducing the chances of developing these peristomal hernia repairs um, or peristomal hernia complications. It's placed uh, anterior to the posterior sheath of the rectus uh, there so that it's, it's not exposed intraperitoneally. It's a piece of ultra pro mesh, essentially using the same piece of mesh that uh, was used in those uh, colorectal trials as well. We're nearing the end of uh, accrual to our study. And uh, over the next uh, probably 18, 24 months, as patients are followed out, we'll have a better sense. And I know that there's a second trial being done on the West Coast as well. Um, let's move to some of the continent reconstructions here. Um, continent cutaneous reservoirs. This is probably the type of reservoir that's least seen during your training. Well, why were these developed? Well, the idea here was to develop a, a high uh, volume, low pressure system that could store urine internally, preserve the upper tracts. Ideally, these reservoirs would not absorb any, uh, absorb any of the excreted substances within the urine, but obviously using bowel, we've not been able to completely eliminate that. Ideally, these reservoirs would also allow for complete volitional voiding. And the idea again here was to eliminate the need for an external appliance to improve body image and perhaps overall quality of life. Uh, the best people that we've found over the years for these continent reconstructions to the abdominal wall are usually more motivated uh, folks, usually those with uh, more limited comorbidities, I think people with active lifestyles um, feel that they can, uh, by eliminating the external appliance, it may provide them an opportunity to, to get back more closely to what they lived prior to surgery. Uh, people with concerns for body image are probably the group that would benefit the most from these types of reconstructions where body image drives a large part of their overall quality of life. Um, and obviously it's based on the desire to eliminate a external appearing stoma, but because they're continent reservoirs and these are intestines, so their daytime jobs are to absorb substances, they need to have adequate renal function to manage some of the metabolic issues that can occur, as well as hepatic function since ammonia uh, is one of the key uh, urinary uh, uh, components that is absorbed through these segments. The idea here, obviously, is that by doing this, uh, these somewhat more complicated reconstructions that we need to improve quality of life. And so they need to work, basically. And for them to work, if they're continent cutaneous reservoirs, it's really critical that the valve mechanism that prevents urinary leakage is effective. And all the valve mechanisms that have been designed in the various forms of reconstruction, I think could probably be broadly placed in one of these three categories, hydraulic valves, nipple systems, or flap valves. And I just want to run through these since a lot of you may not see a ton of these during your training. The ileocecal reservoir is sort of the quintessential um, continent cutaneous reservoir system. It's a hydraulic valve mechanism. And what happens is there's a fixed amount of resistance that's uh, designed 
and placed at the level of the ileocecal valve with a series of buttressing sutures. The ileocecal valve can be used for this uh, uh, resistance as well. And there's probably a little bit of resistance in the tapered limb that they catheterize through. Um, the typical way that these uh, uh, right colon uh, or ileocecal segments are utilized, you can see that uh, the entire ascending colon typically is used the reservoir itself is made of the ascending colon portion and that's detubularized uh, and then can be refolded on itself. There's other modifications where rather than taking as much of the ascending colon, you can use a segment of more proximal ileum, which can also be detubularized and used essentially as a way of augmenting the colon segment to make the reservoir itself. As I mentioned, the valve mechanisms are really the key in uh, preventing leakage here and keeping quality of life high. Uh, this is uh, now with the use of the stapling devices, this is the typical way in which these valve mechanisms are developed. They're tapered, uh, usually over a 16 or an 18 French catheter. We can use a series of clamps basically to hold the catheter in place and then using uh, bowel staplers, you can develop a series of very smooth uh, staple lines all the way down to, but not including the ileocecal valve itself. So you kind of move off to the side near the base of the cecum so as not to damage the cecum itself and the valve mechanism. Uh, then there's a series of buttressing sutures that are placed, um, which basically can, you can't circumferentially cinch down the valve mechanism because of the mesentery, uh, but you try to add additional uh, resistance by putting a series of sutures into this area, being very careful that every time you tie one of these sutures down, you pull back on the catheter and reinsert it to make sure that it can go in okay. But that's basically the way that uh, these hydraulic systems work. Nipple systems, the concept here is that if you were able to bring uh, a, a catheterizable channel into the reservoir itself, that the pressure within the reservoir as it developed would also circumferentially end up compressing the nipple system and therefore make these infinitely continent. Uh, the issue is, is that while this actually will work to close off the valve mechanism as the reservoir fills, there's also pressure exerted to the base of the nipple system, which tends to actually extasuscept the valve itself. And therefore, a series of techniques were developed to try and uh, put these valve mechanisms in place so that they wouldn't end up extasuscepting. Um, the Coke nipple system is probably one of the prototypical uh, examples um, now, basically more of historical interest. Very few people actually do this, but just uh, to run through how these are done, these were small bowel-based uh, reservoirs. And what would happen is the nipple system on this side here, in order to intersuscept it into the reservoir, you'd need to strip a little segment of the mesentery away. The mesentery obviously is blood supply, which led to some of the problems with doing this. You'd reach in and you would intersuscept the nipple system and then secure it into position so it could not extasuscept with a series of staples. Initially, these are metallic staples and Metal in the presence of urine obviously would lead to stones, one of the complications of these nipple systems. And then over time as well, Dr. Skinner, who really championed uh, this for urinary reconstruction, would use um, a, uh, a strut of tissue here. Initially, this was 
non-resorbable tissue to try and again uh, stabilize the valve system here, but uh, we would end up finding that some of these segments would end up eroding uh, into the bowel itself. Uh, then some non, and then some resorbable segments such as Marlex were used over time, but um, because the blood supply had been compromised, these things over time also would become a little bit ischemic, uh, and that led to some stenosis issues. And so, uh, but this is kind of the design. I'm, I think most of you probably have not seen this, um, but that's what the nipple system is like. Um, the final system is a flat valve system. Uh, here, these valves basically, uh, if you look at our uh, ureterovesical connection, this is kind of a, an example of what these flap valves are like. So as the tube is tunneled through the detrusor muscle here, the inside pressures within the reservoir or within the uh, bladder would push on, if you, were, if you would, the roof of this uh, flap valve system with the muscle itself being the floor, and this is the way that the intravesical uh, ureter would be compressed and prevent reflux. These designs can be recreated using bowel segments, whether it's uh, like the appendix or a metrophenoff within the bladder, you could tunnel this as well to form a flap valve system. Uh, or you could do this uh, solely out of bowel segments here. So this is an example of uh, the Mainz pouch, which again is a uh, ascending colon and ileal segment where essentially the ileum, the terminal ileum is used as an augmentation segment, if you will, onto the colon. So not as much colon is required. The ureters are placed directly into the colon. Here you can see their tunnel. This was the original design. And there's some issues obviously with tunneling the ureters here in the strictures. We'll talk a little bit about that. The valve system, the continent uh, um, or the uh, uh, channel that would be catheterized was actually the, the appendix the, the appendix itself. Um, the flap valve was developed by incising the um, tinea anteriorly along the cecum here, not all the way through, but down to the mucosa and the appendix then would be flipped into the system and then basically uh, wrapped with the cecal wall, if you will, forming this flap valve. This would then be the floor and internally would be the roof. So as the reservoir pressures increased, it would compress the appendix. And then this would be brought out to the skin as the catheterizable limb itself. Um, there had been some comparisons with respect to complications uh, and continence rates between things like these intussuscepted nipple systems. This is a little bit different system or the appendix in situ appendix system. This is a wonderful uh, over 400 patient cutaneous uh, comparison that was published now about 14 years ago. And what you can see when you compared the appendix system to this ileal flap valve or um, uh, intussuscepted system, continence is exceedingly high in these appendix systems. But because the appendix doesn't have quite as robust a blood supply, you do trade off some stomal stenosis. In general, these are just easily dilated uh, within the clinic. Uh, some patients can even be taught to do this at home. Uh, they still will develop some stones, but fixing a continence mechanism is a major revision. These pretty much all have to go to the OR to get these fixed. Many of these are minor complications uh, that can be managed uh, even in the outpatient setting. Um, the other issue obviously has to do uh, with the ureteroenteric connections with any system that we create. Uh, with respect to some of these continent diversions, 
uh, over time, as experience increased, uh, these were being offered in patients undergoing pelvic exenerative surgery, particularly women with gynecologic malignancies in hope of being able to eliminate one of the appliances. Um, and so these were being placed in sort of higher risk patients that underwent a lot of preoperative radiation therapy, larger operations, total pelvic exenerations, complication rates uh, in this particular series uh, high. But again, this is a, uh, these are pretty morbid procedures. But what I want you to focus on here in particularly were the ureterostricture stricture obstruction rates of 20%, very high and significantly morbid type complications that could occur over time. Why were these, uh, why does any ureter have a problem? Well, it's related to these factors here. Uh, ischemia of the distal ureter, periureteral leaks that can lead to fibrosis. Those leaks can lead to infection and the infection can augment the scarring. And obviously if we're dealing with radiated uh, patients, those distal ureters and the pelvis have received a high dose of that radiation therapy and radiation will damage some of the small vessels supplying the ureter. So. Uh, we want to obviously not use radiated segments. Uh, from a technical standpoint, tension-free connections are critical here. I think perioperative stenting is still important. It's beginning to be questioned a little bit more, but trying to eliminate the perioperative ureteral leakage is important. You want to minimize mobilization of the ureter, and you have to understand that you know there is a segmental uh, blood supply to the ureter itself. It starts up at the renal hilum. You get it off of the gonadals, the aorta. Most of those proximal vascul uh, vasculatures can be maintained. You don't want to overmobilize the ureter because, again, if these lower branches coming off the common iliac are taken to mobilize the ureter away to do the cystectomy, uh, that means blood supply is coming from above. And it's related then to the uh, vessels within that periureteral adventitial sheath. These are very fine arterioles bringing blood down from the proximal blood supply. These can be damaged by radiation. They can be damaged by um, crushing uh, during uh, mobilization of the ureter as well. So very delicate uh, uh, use and, and mobilization and manipulation of the ureter is critical while you're putting these together as well. And using non-radiated segments in those high-risk patients is critical, which means you got to cut back the ureters, which therefore sometimes can make it a more challenging procedure to be able to directly put them into a colon segment, particularly the left-sided ureter. Attention to all these little details is what's going to lower your ureteroenteric stricture rates, which again is probably one of the more morbid complications that can occur. There's a variety of ways in which the ureters can be put into the bowel. They can be tunneled. Uh, to prevent reflux or they can be freely refluxing. I think the bottom line is, is that uh, the refluxing direct connections are the ones associated with the lower risk of strictures uh, over time. Uh, you could put the two ureters together in a what's called a Wallace uh, configuration. There's some that think that, uh, that by putting them together, you can lower the ureteroenteric stricture rates. Uh, this comparison did demonstrate that in a pretty significant number of connections, their Wallace connections were quite low, 0% strictures, but uh, the rates of the Bricker connections, which is the single ureter into the bowel, were also quite low here as well. I think in general, the, the studies that I've seen in big long-term follow-up studies, there's not much of a difference with well-done Brickers compared to Wallace uh, type connections. 
And I think it's important for you to understand as well that this complication of ureteroenteric stricture is a time-dependent variable. Uh, this is a beautiful long-term follow-up study by Dr. Houtman, who showed that uh, his, his complication rates, again, using either Wallace or the Leduc, which is the tunneled uh, 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 single connection into the bowel over time, uh, you can see that uh, early on his complication rates were actually quite low, but as he followed these patients for many years, those complication rates continued to increase. Here's the five-year mark here. So you can see following over time is important. Um, it's critical because as we see studies, this is just one example of a study with relatively short follow-up. If we go back here, the median follow-up here in this uh, series was about 60 months. Um, this is an open and robotic a series from a single institution showing a medium follow-up of about eight months. And you can see they're already reporting rates for their open at about eight, the robot at about 12. But what they're doing is they're reporting at very early time points here. And you can see that if you're beginning to develop a high single digit or even double digit risks of, of stenosis early on, that over time, the, those rates are going to increase. And again, you know, with, as Dr. Houtman's demonstrated nicely, even beyond five or six years worth of follow-up, uh, those rates uh, may continue to rise. So if we just focus on that early time period, you may just be looking at the tip of the iceberg here. So, um, so how do we modify or, or consider uh, in some of these high-risk patients where we need to cut back the ureters, or maybe we have carcinoma in situ involving the distal ureters if we cut back this becomes uh, one of the weak points in some of these continent cutaneous reservoirs. These lower distal segments here, whether they've been stripped of their blood supply, previously radiated, or maybe involved with disease, once we begin to cut these back, the question is how can we then develop a cutaneous reservoir? One of the modifications that we could do is we could use a terminal ileal segment here as a ureteral substitution segment. This can be cut as long as you need to and could even go up to the renal pelvises. But what it does is it allows us to get back to uh, either non-radiated or better vascularized segments of the ureter itself. So I just want to kind of run through uh, quickly um, sort of my preferred cutaneous uh, reservoir. It's an ileocecal segment here. So just for orientation, the uh, terminal ileum is attached here. The appendix is coming down this way. So this is cecum ascending colon is located here. What we'll do is we'll close off uh, the distal uh, portion of the terminal ileum here. Uh, again, this will be our ureteral substitution segment. The distal aspect of the appendix has been amputated here, and I've made sure that I can at least get in a 14 French, preferably a 16 French a catheter to make sure that the luminal size is adequate for catheterization, that there's no strictures or other issues with the appendix. This one obviously will work fine. And then we'll divide the ascending colon near the uh, hepatic flexure to take the entire ascending colon. This will be the segment for the reservoir itself. Base of the appendix right here, uh, anterior tinea, usually I'll inject that with a dilute saline epinephrine solution to raise a bleb um, of uh, a seromuscular tissue. You can begin to see that bleb forming here. And what that's doing is it's separating the mucosa uh, from the seromuscular layer itself. Then we'll incise from the base of the appendix through that uh, anterior tinea down to, but not including the mucosa. And we'll try to make this so that the tunnel is about four centimeters if possible. 
We'll then develop the flaps, if you will. So these are full thickness down to the mucosa. So they're seromuscular until you can see kind of that blue mucosa beginning to uh, poke up. Uh, uh, and then basically what we'll do is we're gonna fold the appendix into this area. But because of the mesentery here, it's very difficult to fold all that in there and still be able to wrap it. So what we're gonna do is we're gonna open up the mesentery through the windows of Deaver. So the blood supply of the appendix are coming through these areas here. These are the windows of Deaver in between the vasculature. And that's how we're gonna secure the appendix in place. So, but for orientation again now, here's the appendix, the cecum, we've made our trough here. So now we're gonna go ahead and form our flap valve system here. This is non-resorbable suture. This is a silk that I'm using here. What I'm gonna do is I'm gonna take a bite of one side, bring it through the first window of Deaver, take a bite of the other part of that flap on the cecum, bring the needle back through. And then as we rotate this in, we're gonna tie that down. So let's run through how we do that. So I've taken a bite of that first flap here. We're gonna grab the suture, not the needle, so that this can easily come through without damaging the vessels here. Grab it bring it through, take a bite of the other side, and then bring it back through that same window again, grabbing the suture, not the needle. And then basically as we rotate the appendix in, we can go ahead and tie those sutures. And then we can get a series of sutures in between each one of these windows. Here's our second suture through the first window of Deaver there. And essentially what we'll do is we'll just work our way down, forming a series of these sutures uh, to wrap that, and you can see the mesentery of the appendix is completely intact here. Because we could bring this out to the umbilicus, you don't really need much length here of the appendix in order to make that connection. Even in the most obese patient, the base of the appendix, the base of the umbilicus always attaches to the anterior fascia, so you really don't need much appendix. Uh, then the reservoir segment is detubularized and closed and this is a clamshell conversion uh, and you can basically see the reservoir segment here, the appendix and the flap valve that's made here and then basically our ureteral substitution segment. You can then put your ureters in. You can make this as long as you need to substitute loss length of the ureter itself and then that can come out to the umbilicus. Um, so I want to go ahead and for time's sake and kind of talk a bit about uh, the other main form of reconstructive uh, procedures that we do for continent reconstructions, which is your orthotopic neobladder. Obviously, this has some huge advantages because it, uh, it continues the natural voiding pathway. It should optimally allow for complete continence, volitional voiding. It eliminates the need for the external appliance. And, and many of these designs are actually quite simple uh, to make. So let's talk about a few of the, uh, the aspects here, the oncologic principles, some functional considerations and some technical aspects here. Um, obviously leaving the urethra behind makes sense as long as that urethra is not gonna uh, develop cancer at a high frequency. Uh, and we know from a whole variety of bladder cancer series of men who have their either a bladder intacts or following cystectomy that the urethra in general develops uh, recurrence rates in a relatively small percentage of folks. Usually it's about 10%, sorry about that. So what are the risk factors associated for a urethral recurrence? If we look at the factors of the bladder tumor to try and identify which of these factors would be associated, papillary tumors, multifocality, bladder neck involvement, upper tract, CIS within the bladder, prosthetic urethral involvement, 
these were all thought to be important factors, but ultimately it really, if this were the case, then about 70% of patients would develop recurrences within the urethra because that's how commonly we find these particular characteristics of bladder cancer. But as I told you, only about 10% of urethras will develop disease. Ultimately, it really was prosthetic urethral involvement that was demonstrated to be associated with a high risk of recurrence within the urethra itself. And this is some early data that Mark Soloway had uh, demonstrated showing that uh, in men that had undergone cystectomy over time, um, he found that it was really patients with prosthetic involvement that had a significant risk of developing a disease that required a urethrectomy over time. These low to moderate risks had many of those features such as papillary disease within the bladder, multifocality within the bladder, bladder neck involvement, but you can see that the risk of developing a urethral recurrence in these men who were diverted all to the skin, this was, these were all conduit patients essentially. If you look specifically at the patients with prosthetic involvement, it really wasn't prosthetic urethral involvement in the eight patients, none of those developed it. It was patients with stromal invasion of the prostate that had the highest risk of involvement, or I should say development of a urethral recurrence over time. So this is thought to be the main issue associated with recurrence. This is a very high rate, uh, which again, in men that are not diverted uh, to the urethra, meaning not with a neobladder, these are essentially defunctionalized urethras after cystectomy. Do we see that same recurrence risk in men that undergo orthotopic reconstructions? This is the USC series, a large series of patients, nearly 400 orthotopics and cutaneous diversions. So some dry urethras and then the orthotopics obviously where urine is flowing through these. The five-year urethral recurrence risk was actually quite low in both. 8% in the cutaneous diversions, 3% only 3% in the orthotopic diversion. And the median follow-up time was 10 years for the orthotopics and 15 years for the cutaneous diversion. So long-term follow-up here, um, but relatively low risks, particularly in those undergoing orthotopic reconstruction. If you look specifically at the group undergoing orthotopic reconstruction, about 17% of patients had prosthetic involvement of some form uh, that's a relatively low rate, as I'll tell you, because of selection criteria. But even within uh, the patients that had either invasive disease within the prostate, but still had an orthotopic or superficial invasion of the urethelium uh, in the prosthetic urethra, the risk really wasn't much higher than about 15% as far as recurring within the remaining urethra in the orthotopic patients. If there was no prosthetic involvement, it was only about 5% over time. And this is typically what I see as well. This is what I quote most patients here, that there's about a five to 6% risk of recurring within the urethra over time. How common is prosthetic involvement by urethelial cancer? Well, this was a series of 245 men that underwent radical cystectomy where we step section the entire prostate. The pathology folks were very good about looking at a, in a very detailed fashion at the prostates of these men. And what we found was that basically about a third of these patients had some urethelial involvement of the prostate. So twice as much as what was seen in that USC series, but maybe it's a factor of how hard we end up looking. If you did have urethelial involvement, it's interesting, the most common form was prosthetic stromal invasion. 
So it is something that we need to look for. Typically what we'll end up doing is we'll do a cystoscopic evaluation to make sure that the prosthetic urethra looks clear. I don't do pre-op biopsies, uh, but some people uh, will do uh, loop biopsies of the uh, prosthetic urethra prior to cystectomy. What I use is a full thickness frozen section of the urethral margin at the time of cystectomy. And if that's negative, that's the group of patients that have been associated with that 5% risk of recurring over time. We still have to monitor the urethra, uh, whether it's through uh, washings of the urethra and men diverted to the skin or whether it's uh, voided cytologies, but usually we can pick up high-grade cancer cells within the system, um, but it does need to be monitored, particularly if you do have a patient with some prosthetic involvement uh, uh, over time. When we do monitor these urethras over time, this is a couple of series, one from Dr. Studer's series and the other from Memorial, you can see that the pathology of the urethrectomy specimen demonstrates early stage disease. Why is there such a high rate of PT0 here? Well, most of these specimens are gonna be read out as denuded. Why denuded? Um, that's basically uh, carcinoma in situ that's been washed away during the processing of these urethras. Um, the, all these patients had positive biopsies or wash cytologies showing high-grade cancer cells pre-op. Uh, and so when you get a extensively denuded specimen, in a patient that has a positive urethral wash for high-grade cancer cells, that's essentially carcinoma in situ. And you can see that most of these patients are, again, picked up at very early stages. So it is safe from an oncologic standpoint with proper selection. What about functional considerations? Well, here's one of the earliest forms of orthotopic done in humans. This is Camay's early experience that was first published in 1958. What he did was he took a tubularized segment of bowel, plugged the ureters in either end, and then basically the base of the U, if you will, was uh, connected to the urethra itself. This actually functioned pretty well during the daytime. At night, because of the tubularized bowel and the peristalsis of the bowel, you would get periodic high pressure waves that were created within the system, which led to a significant amount of uh, particularly nocturnal incontinence. And that sort of took this out of favor uh, for, um, for many years um, until basically it was uh, using the law of Laplace recognized that by detubularizing and folding the segments, therefore you could increase the radius of the reservoir, decreasing the tension within the reservoir by, uh, 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 to the square root basically. Um, and so this was Camay's modification, where basically what he did was instead of using that U configuration, he turned it into an S, detubularized it, and brought it down, and this actually functioned quite well. The S configuration has been modified to a W. Uh, this is the Houtman Reservoir, or you could take the S and modify it uh, and make a chimney here, or even a dual chimneys type system. Uh, you could take your S configuration and turn it into a U, uh, which was the Studer configuration, but these are all basically variations on what Cam A initially came up with many years ago. You could even use the uh, colon segments as well uh, in order to uh, connect this down to the urethra as a mines pouch to the urethra itself. How functional is it? This is some of the early data that was uh, put out. If you look particularly at continents, Daytime continence rates very high. Night, nighttime continence at one year, 
also uh, acceptable in many, uh, but not all uh, series. Some still show that maybe about uh, uh, two thirds of men are gonna be dry most nights. Uh, it takes time for the continents to come uh, back over time and it has to do with the capacity development of the reservoir early on. Most of these reservoirs will hold about 100 cc's. Usually it's up to 300 cc's by about three months. And if you have them void regularly every four, three to four hours, you could get the reservoirs to maintain about a five to 600 cc capacity, which is adequate for uh, at least a four hour continence interval for most. Uh, and it's easy to empty as well. You can see that even in some of the older patients, those patients older than 70, the daytime continence actually is still quite high. If you measure it out to about one year, it's the nighttime continence that's not quite as good in the older folks. And that may be one of the reasons uh, to move away from this, particularly in patients who are maybe in their later 70s and certainly in their 80s, the time to control and the nighttime continence is not quite as good. Time to control is shown here. The white bars are daytime, the black bars are nighttime control. Uh, and what you can see is that the, the daytime continence in general comes back usually by about a year, year and a half is when it peaks out and it stays pretty constant as these folks age over time. The nighttime continence lags behind the daytime continence. So they may be doing quite well early on with daytime continence, but a lot of them are still having issues at night. Usually it's not until about that two year period before I'll say this is about as good as it ends up getting. But there are various modifications as far as slowing down the amount of fluid they drink late at night, uh, things like that, that might be able to improve this. But it will take time for that nighttime to control. And as folks age, the nighttime control begins to drop off. This is important. Some of this I think is actually more voluntary. People make the decision as they get a little bit older to sleep through the night rather than getting up once or twice. And because of that, they do report, I think, more leakage. Emptying uh, at some point from, um, for males, maybe about 10% at some point may develop uh, evidence that they're having some issues with uh, emptying. Many of these are fixable. So there's a small percentage of men that will develop some mechanical issues. Uh, you know, the obstructions within the urethra, they're rare, but they can occur. And those are fixable things. So you want to get a look inside. Rarely, as we talked about, could a tumor or recurrence lead to some changes in their voiding pattern. But if somebody does report that, you need to get a scope down there and take a look. Dysfunctional voiding, where they just cannot coordinate relaxation of the external sphincter with the pressurization of the abdomen. These are the folks that may end up needing to catheterize long-term. And that's basically what I find that in my practice, there's about three to 4% of men long-term we can't retrain. And those are the group that have to catheterize themselves. So real briefly here, what about women? Uh, should it be done? Can it be done? Well, we had to understand the anatomy of the sphincter complex in women. Remember, essentially all women undergoing cystectomy had a urethrectomy. We didn't know uh, that much about the continence mechanism early on. We didn't know how to preserve that. We also didn't know what the risk was of leaving the urethra behind in women. It's important to understand that the urethral uh, continence mechanism uh, the external sphincter is a striated muscle component that really sits over the caudal two-thirds of the urethra in women. It's an omega-shaped muscle that sits anteriorly, and it's supplied by the pudendal uh, nerve. Um, we'll talk a little bit more about this, but the pudendal nerve coming out of the sacral nerve roots runs alongside 
uh, the lateral aspect of the vagina pierces through the uh, endopelvic fascia and then these anterior branches off the pudendal are what basically supply and innervate the, uh, the urethra in women. This is basically a view after the cystectomy where we're doing a vaginal preservation procedure here. Uh, the uh, vagina can then be closed and suspended, if you will, to the sacrum um, to try to pr provide a little bit of posterior support to the neobladder. We'll talk about why that may be important. Interposing the omentum down between the vaginal closure and the urethral connection to the neobladder, I think is critical to preventing fistulas between the neobladder, urethra, and vaginal closure. And a cuff that's very small, this could be right on top of this. So having the omentum in place is very important to prevent that very difficult uh, complication of a, uh, of a fistula. As I said, from a cancer perspective, routine resection of the urethra and usually part of the anterior vaginal wall made it so that we really didn't understand what the risk of leaving the urethra behind was. Um, and what was clear was that there were two characteristics of the bladder tumor that were uh, highly associated with concomitant involvement of the urethra. If you had bladder neck involvement within a woman or invasion of the anterior vaginal wall from a posterior based tumor, uh, these were associated uh, typically with concomitant involvement of the urethra, but these are relatively rare events um, and usually can be identified either cystoscopically prior to surgery, or you can pick it up through bladder neck biopsies or even a full, thick, full thickness frozen section uh, of the urethra and the bladder neck area of a woman at the time of cystectomy. If we use these criteria for who shouldn't get a neobladder in a woman, just this criteria alone, about 75% of women would be candidates for a neobladder. 75% of women do not have these characteristics, but obviously there's some other issues to consider. Uh, recurrence risks in women who are selected. These are women, again, without bladder neck involvement, negative full thickness frozen sections at the time of surgery. You can see the urethral recurrence risks in highly selected women, appropriately selected women, is actually quite low, so it is safe to do. From a functional standpoint, daytime control rates are actually quite high uh, in women. Nighttime control rates also very good. It's the intermittent catheterization rates which tend to be quite high. Why does that happen? There's a variety of potential reasons as to why uh, women may have a higher problem than this in men. This is a woman with a uh, a non of VCUG. She's undergone a cystectomy and a neobladder here. What you can see here is a, a woman without any voiding dysfunction. The bladder angle is quite nice to the urethra. And here's a woman who is having trouble voiding. What happens is, is that as she strains, there's a posterior prolapse of the neobladder forming an acute angle of the neobladder in the urethra. The harder she strains, the more this angle becomes acute and therefore it obstructs at the connection. And so therefore there's been a variety of techniques that have been used to, tr oops, sorry, to try and support the area around the vagina, either posteriorly or providing some anterior support to the neobladder to try and prevent that prolapse. And in some women, it can help. This was the Mainz, or the uh, uh, Mansour group that basically demonstrated uh, about a 20% uh, risk of, of prolapse that led to inability to empty. And they were able to drop that with some of these surgical modifications. I think that some of the anatomic issues related to nerve preservation of that distal urethra 
may be important in this this puzzle with respect to uh, uh, women having an inability to empty. It's thought that perhaps denervation of that proximal portion of the urethra leads to a flaccid urethra with which without tone may actually not open but serve as a potential functional obstruction. It's important again to remember then that if we're gonna try and preserve these nerves in women, we essentially have to divide the area around the posterior bladder and, and the vagina very high near the bladder neck area. Um, so rather than a wide perivesical resection, now you're looking at trying to resect at the 11 and one o'clock positions. Obviously that can only be done in a woman who has relatively early stage disease. But if we're gonna try and preserve these perivaginal uh, nerves, it's gonna be very important. The other thing is, is to stay away from the endopelvic fascia dissection in a woman that you're gonna do a neobladder on because those pudendal nerve roots are piercing the endopelvic fascia. You don't wanna open that and potentially damage these roots down here, which could then injure uh, the innervation of the urethra in this area here. All right, it's a little after eight o'clock, so I think what I'm gonna do is stop there, uh, and then we'll have time for Dr. Sternberg's uh, talk. Um, I appreciate everybody's attention. If you have any questions real quickly, we can run through those. Sure, no, thank you, uh, Dr. Bachner. That was an amazing talk. Um, one of the questions that we had uh, just along the lines of what we were just talking about with the female orthotopic diversions, um, I think someone had a question regarding the hypercontinence and how do you specifically uh, manage that intra-op? Like what are your techniques uh, specifically and post-op? Um, right. you know, so intra-op, what I'll do is, as mentioned, it's in, in women with early stage disease, I'll try my very best to do nerve sparing surgery and stay anteriorly along the vaginal walls to try and not damage these nerve fibers. Um, some of the uh, Japanese gynecologists have published some beautiful um, pictures of anatomic dissections for nerve sparing uh, hysterectomies. And you may wanna go back and take a look at some of that literature. Um, but that's one, one possibility in early stage women. We don't do anything with respect to the endopelvic fascia as far as opening that during the uh, dissection. Um, the other thing is, is that I will do a formal suspension of the vaginal vault uh, with a, a piece of uh, pro soft proline mesh actually. So a formal sacrocopoplexy to provide some posterior support and then slide that omentum on top of that for additional support posteriorly. When we've studied some of the women who have um, not, who are not adequately emptying, we have found very few with this hypermobility of the neobladder. That, that is obviously one mechanism, but it's, there's other mechanisms that are happening. And I'm beginning to think more and more it has to do with the denervation of that proximal segment of the urethra itself. Mm -hmm. So it, it's still something that needs to be better sorted out. And so maybe one of the listeners here uh, over time, you guys will solve that puzzle for us. I hope so. Um, another person was just asking um, about specifically to your uh, ureteroenteric anastomosis, the technique that you you uh, use, the type of stitch, how long do you keep your stents in for? Yeah. Um, so yeah. I tend to do brickers, uh, direct endocyte connections, spatulated, mm -hmm. uh, and I'll use a series of interrupted sutures. I put a single stitch in to move the ureter around so there's no grabbing of the ureter at all. We're very careful about trying to preserve that periureteral blood supply. 
Uh, I'll cut back as high as I need to get well vascularized segments. I minimize the dissection of the vasculature. I'll only take what I need to do the node dissection. So if we're doing an extended node dissection, we'll have to free up the connections of the common iliacs. But what we'll maintain always is the blood supply coming from the gonadal vessels. That's good blood supply. You do not need to free up that lateral supply coming into the ureter itself. So minimize the mobilization as much as you can. Uh, carefully and delicately deal with the ureter itself. Carefully placing forovicral sutures is what I end up using in an interrupted fashion. We tend to remove the uh, stents pretty early. So for conduits, usually before patients leave the hospital, they're coming out, which means it could be as early as three or four days and the, con and the stents are coming out. Excuse me, for the neobladders, uh, those, I sew those stents internally to the end of the catheter itself. So those stents stay in place till the urethral catheter comes out. And that's usually at the three week mark from the time of surgery. I see. Um, do you, uh, is someone's asking um, any use of DDAVP for nocturnal incontinence for patients that suffer? Um, we really haven't used that too much because it's an elderly population. We were a little bit about some of the other side effects of that medication. Uh, usually what we try as other uh, behavioral modifications. It's usually people who are drinking a lot of fluid late at night. And there's just some people that eat late. They, you know, will always have water by their bedside. Or for some reason, they've heard that it's great to hydrate. They need to drink, you know, a sure. hundred ounces of fluid a day. Um, and so... Those patients need a little bit of, of behavior modification. The majority of folks can do pretty well, but I, you know, certainly as they age, the nighttime control can become more problematic. And so you got to be upfront with folks early on and let them know that that can be a problem. So people who travel a lot find that, that potentially that nighttime leakage could be a real hit to their quality of life. And you know what? In some of those people, it may be that a well-placed conduit does a better job for them. Um, and so this is a discussion that you have to have with your patients. Understand your outcomes. Very important that you track your outcomes so you know how your patients are doing and uh, therefore you'll know what to fix. So if you find that, for instance, you know, 20% of your men have to catheterize, that's too high a rate. You're not doing something correctly. Go back, find out exactly what it is that you may be doing. Give me a call. Give one of your mentors a call that are doing a lot of these. Um, but you got to track those outcomes so you know how to fix things. Sure, sure. Um, in regards to patient selection, um, someone is asking uh, you know, who um, who do you offer you know continent diversions to? Do you just offer them to anyone, or you know conduits versus orthotopic diversions? Like how do you how do you decide? Um, and how do you have those conversations with patients? So, you know, it, 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 there's great variability in who's going to be offered. In general, if you just look at cancer factors, that's, prime, that's the first thing you need to look sure. at. Is there involvement of the urethra? Can we use it? Yes or no. Do they have extensive uh, history of stricture disease? That's going to make it quite difficult. That's the primary thing. If the urethra is not involved and otherwise in good shape, you know, are, uh, how old is the patient? What is the expected recovery? And remember, there's chronologic age and there's physiologic age uh, that you need to kind of uh, consider while you're doing this as well. Prior pelvic surgery sometimes is going to play a big role or prior treatment, radiation therapy. Now, having said that, I've done 
uh, orthotopics on some younger men that have had either prior radical prostatectomies or prior radiation therapy to the prostates. And continence rates will be affected, but they actually still, in, in well-selected patients, end up with pretty high urinary control rates. Stricture rates are quite low because you're bringing well-vascularized bowel down to that urethra. But even in the worst outcome setting, if they're completely incontinent, you still have the ability to place an artificial sphincter, which can work perfectly well in many of these folks. Um, it's a very rare event that you're going to need to end up placing a sphincter in these folks. But there's some younger people who are adamant about uh, having an orthotopic. And again, as long as you understand the technical challenges and the realistic expectations with respect to functional outcomes, you can even offer it in those folks as well. So not a straightforward question, but in my practice, I would say uh, probably 70% of men are undergoing orthotopics uh, and about 30% undergo uh, uh, cutaneous reconstructions, most of those conduits. Gotcha. Um, and I know, I, you know, this is becoming more and more popular with regards to uh, prehabilitation, you know, protocols that patients use, peri or, uh, that we use periop and then post-operative care. Could you tell us a little bit about anything that you do before the surgeries for the patients? Yeah. What type of things are you doing periop and then post-op routine uh, care? For yeah. these so the prehab is sort of just beginning to make its way out to try and really understand how that's going to benefit this particularly older comorbid group of folks. Um, but I think that there are certainly things that we need to pay attention to. Uh, the reality is most of these people are going to surgery fairly quickly. Perioperatively, the enhanced recovery pathways have really been able to minimize ileuses in most folks. I think that the um, alnivapan uh, and the decreased use of uh, perioperative narcotics is really key. Um, and that's helping, that's helping quite a bit um, in getting folks mobilized quicker. Uh, but this is just a big operation. And I think we really got to have to keep our eye on the ball here. Uh, you know, and some of these older folks in their 80s, for instance, is getting them out on day three or four so they can go home to their 80-year-old spouse to take care of them. Is ultimately that going to lead to the best outcome? We need to be a little selective as to who we're going to push out quickly. Mm -hmm. um, they do struggle a bit. They're very catabolic. They're going to lose weight. They struggle with their fluid intake for a period of time. So it is a big recovery. Sure. Um, Post-op, they need a they need a, a lot of care and attention. Um, the, and even though there is a fairly high morbidity associated with the surgery, most of those complications should be low grade. Only about. 20% of the complications that we see should be a higher grade complication. Uh, the vast majority are low grade. And, and again, you know, we've seen uh, in hospital stays drop from 14 days to 10 days, eight days, now down closer to five to six days. Um, whether it's done robotically or open, you can still get these folks out relatively early. Sure. Um, just, to, just to end off, someone is asking specifically um, with regards uh, to uh, patient uh, habitus, uh, whether they're obese, uh, morbidly obese, high BMIs, how does that change your approach for yeah. uh, ileal conduits or whatever kind of content? Well, I think in the, in the obese patient, the best type of reconstruction is the orthotopic. Any type of cutaneous reconstruction on folks is fraught with trouble. Uh, and especially in people with very large panaces, you know, there's only so much mobility to the reservoir mesentery, and sometimes it's very, very difficult to get a 
uh, a protruding stoma in patients that are exceedingly obese. Even with paniculectomies and other issues, it can really be a challenge. And if they don't have a good stoma, then it becomes issues with leakage and skin care, and it can really be quite morbid. Mm -hmm. uh, hernias are also exceedingly high risk in patients that are morbidly obese. So when possible, orthotopic reconstructions, I think in those folks are the best. Um, but a series of those folks are gonna end up needing conduits and they can be challenging. The folks that have BMIs in 40, 45, uh, it's, it's, uh, it's a real challenge. If you can get them internally reconstructed, that's the best. Sure. Well, Dr. Bachner, thank you um, so much. It was really an honor to have you. Some people were 